0: section 7 of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume 1 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lilly Crake, chapter two part one the norman conquest the year 1066 is memorable as that of the norman conquest the conquest of england by the normans the conquests of which we read in the history of nations are of three kinds sometimes one population has been overwhelmed by or driven before another as it might have been by an inundation of the sea or at the most a small number of the old inhabitants of the invaded territory have been permitted to remain on it as the bondsmen of their conquerors this appears to have been the usual mode of proceeding of the barbarous races as we call them by which the greater part of europe was occupied in early times in their contests with one another when the teuton or goth from the one side of the rhine attacked the celt on the other side the whole tribe precipitated itself upon what was the object at once of its hostility and of its cupidity or even if it was one division of the great gothic race that made war upon another as for instance the scandinavian upon any germanic country the course that was taken was commonly or at least frequently the same the land was cleared by driving away all who could fly and the universal massacre of the rest this primitive kind of invasion and conquest belonged properly to the night of barbarism but in certain of the extreme parts of the european system something of it survived down to a comparatively late date much that we are told of the manner in which britain was wrested from its previous celtic occupants by the angles and saxons in the fifth and sixth centuries of our era would lead us to think that the enterprise of these invaders was both originally conceived and conducted throughout in this spirit nay for some centuries after this we have the danes in their descents and inroads upon all parts of the british territories still acting apparently in the same style but ever from the time of the settlement of the barbarous nations in the more central provinces of the old roman empire another kind of conquest had come into use among them corrupted and enfeebled as it was the advanced civilization which they now encountered seems to have touched them as with a spell or rather could not but communicate to its assailants something of its own spirit a policy of mere destruction was evidently not the course to be adopted here the value of the conquest lay mainly in preserving as far as possible both the stupendous material structures and the other works of art by which the soil was everywhere covered and adorned and the living intelligence and skill of which all these wonders were the product hence the second kind of conquest in which for the first time the conquerors were contented to share the conquered country usually according to a strictly defined proportional division with its previous occupants but this system too was only transitory it passed away with the particular crisis which gave birth to it and then arose the third and last kind of conquest in which there is no general occupation of the soil of the conquered country by the conquerors but only its dominion is acquired by them the first of the three kinds of conquest then has for its object and effect the complete displacement of the ancient inhabitants it is the kind which is proper to the contests of barbarians with barbarians under the second form of conquest the conquerors recognizing a superiority to themselves in many other things even in those whom their superior force or ferocity has subdued feel that they will gain most by foregoing something of their right to the wholesale seizure and appropriation of the soil and neither wholly destroying or expelling its ancient possessors nor even reducing them to a state of slavery but only treating them as a lower caste this is the form proper and natural to the exceptional and rare case of the conquest of a civilized by a barbarous people finally there is that kind of subjugation of one people or country by another which results simply in the overthrow of the independence of the former and the substitution in it or over it of a foreign for a native government this is generally the only kind of conquest which attends upon the wars of civilized nations with one another the conquest of england by the normans in the year 1066 may be regarded as having been professedly a conquest of this last description The age of both the first and the second kinds of conquest was over at least everywhere throughout europe except it may be only along some few portions of its extreme northern boundary both the english and the normans stood indisputably within the pale of civilization the former boasting the possession both of christianity and of a national literature for four or five centuries the latter if more recently reclaimed from paganism and barbarism nevertheless already recognized as one of the most brilliantly gifted of european races and distinguished for their superior aptitude in the arts both of war and of peace of polity and of song and the norman leader having with him in his enterprise the approval and sanction of the church claimed the english crown as his by right nor were there probably wanting many Englishmen, although no doubt the general national feeling was different, who held his claim to be fully as good in law and justice as that of his native competitor. In taking the style of the conqueror with respect to England, as he had been wont to take that of the bastard with reference to his ancestral Normandy, william as has been often explained probably meant nothing more than that he had acquired his english sovereignty for himself by the nomination or bequest of his relation king edward or in whatever other way and had not succeeded to it under the ordinary rule of descent such a right of property is still in the old feudal language technically described in the law of scotland as acquired by conquest and in that of england by purchase which is etymologically of the same meaning the one word being the latin conquestus or conquisitio, the other perquisitio and in point of fact the normans never transferred themselves in a body or generally to england they did not like the barbarous populations of a preceding age abandoned for this new country, the one in which they had previously dwelt. England was never thus taken possession of by the Normans. It was never colonized by these foreigners or occupied by them in any other than a military sense. The Norman duke invaded it with an army, raised partly among his own subjects, partly drawn from other regions of the continent, and so made himself master of it it received a foreign government but not at all a new population two causes however meeting from opposite points and working together soon produced a result which was to some extent the same that would have been produced by a norman colonization the first was the natural demand on the part of william's followers or fellow soldiers for a share in the profits and advantages of their common enterprise which would probably, in any case, have compelled him eventually to surrender his new subjects to spoliation. The second was the equally natural restlessness of the latter, under the foreign yoke that had been imposed upon them, by which they only facilitated the process of their general reduction to poverty and ruin. And to the overthrow thus brought about of the native civilization was added, in the present case the intrusion of another system of social organization and of another language possessing also its own literature to take the place of what was passing away so that here again were two distinct forces harmoniously though by movements in opposite directions cooperating to a common end at the same time that english culture shrunk and faded norman culture flourished and advanced and the two forces were not balanced or in any way connected but quite independent the one of the other english culture went down not under the disastrous influence of the rival light but from the failure of its own natural aliment, or because the social structure of which it was the product had been smitten with universal disorganization it was the withering of life throughout the whole frame that made the eye dim The difference, then, between the case of England conquered by the Normans in the eleventh century and that of Italy overrun by the Goths in the fifth was twofold. First the Normans did not settle in England, as the barbarous nations of the north did in Italy and other provinces of the subjugated Western Empire, but, secondly, on the other hand, the new power which the Norman invasion and conquest of England established in the country was not a barbarism but another civilization in most respects at least as advanced as the indigenous one if younger only therefore the stronger and more aspiring and yet as it proved not differing so far from that with which it was brought into competition as to be incapable of coalescing with it if need were as well as in other circumstances with its advantages of position outshining it or casting it into the shade in this way it came to pass that the final result to both the language and the literature of the conquered people was pretty much the same in the two cases what the barbaric influence in its action upon the latin language and literature wanted of positive vital force it made up for by its mass and weight the norman influence on the contrary compensated by quality for its deficiency in quantity there was considerable difference however in the process by which the transformation was effected in the two cases and in the length of time which it occupied the gothic barbarism was in the first instance simply destructive it was not till after some centuries that it came to be visibly or appreciably anything else but the norman influence in virtue of being that not of a barbarism but of a civilization and especially of a civilization still in all the radiant bloom and buoyant pride of youth never could have been directly destructive from the first moment of their actual contact it must have communicated to the native civilization something of new life one thing further may be noted in both the cases that we have been comparing the result was the combination both in the language and the literature of the same two elements namely the latin or classical and the gothic or germanic in the largest sense but the important difference was that the basis of the combination remaining in each case what it originally was latin in italy in france and spain but gothic in england while the language and literature that grew up in each of the former countries came to be in general spirit and character what is called romance which must be understood to mean modified roman the english language and literature retained their original fundamentally gothic character only modified by so much as it has absorbed of a latin element and the remarkable distinction of the english language is that it is the only one of all the languages of the european world which thus combining the two elements of the classic and the gothic that is as we may say of ancient and of modern civilization is gothic or modern in its skeleton or bony system and in its formative principle and classic or antique only in what of it is comparatively superficial and non-essential The other living european languages are either without the classic element altogether as are all those of the scandinavian and teutonic branches or have it as their principal and governing element as is the case with the italian the french and the spanish which may all be described as only modernized forms of the latin even in the proportion to in which the two elements are combined The English has greatly the advantage over these Romance tongues, as they are called, in none of which is there more than a mere sprinkling of the modern element, whereas in English, although here that constitutes the dominant or more active portion of the compound, the counterpoising ingredient is also present in large quantity, and is influential to a very high degree upon the general character of the language it should seem to follow from all this that both in its inner spirit and in its voice both in its constructional and in its musical genius the english language and through that english literature english civilization or culture generally and the whole temper of the english mind ought to have a capacity of sympathizing at once with the classical and the gothic with the antique and the modern with the past and the present to an extent not to be matched by any other speech or nation of europe it so happens too that the political fortunes of this english tongue have been in singular accordance with its constitution and natural adaptation inasmuch as at the same time that it stands in this remarkable position in the old world its position is still more pre-eminent in the new world whether that designation be confined to the continent of america or understood as including the entire field of modern colonization in every quarter of the globe the english are the only really colonizing people now extant as we remember coleridge once expressing it it is the natural destiny of their country as an island to be the mother of nations their geographical position concurring with their peculiar genius And with all the other favorable circumstances of the case gives them the command of the readiest access to the most distant parts of the earth a universal highway almost as free as is the air to the swarming bees and accordingly all the greatest communities of the future whether they be seated beyond the atlantic or beyond the pacific promise to be communities of english blood and english speech arabic and other new learning the space of about a thousand years extending from the overthrow of the western roman empire in the middle of the fifth century to that of the eastern in the middle of the fifteenth may be divided into two nearly equal parts the first of which may be considered as that of the gradual decline the second is that of the gradual revival of letters the former reaching to the close of the tenth century nearly corresponds in its close as well as in its commencement with the domination in england of the angles and saxons in europe generally throughout this long space of time the intellectual darkness notwithstanding some brief and partial revivals deepens more and more on the whole in the same manner as in the natural day the gray of evening passes into the gloom of midnight the latin learning properly so called may be regarded as terminating with boethius who wrote in the early part of the sixth century the latin language however continued to be used in literary compositions as well as in the services of the church both in our own country and in the other parts of europe that had composed the old empire of rome the danish conquest of england as completed by the accession of canute preceded the norman by exactly half a century and throughout this space the country had with little interruption enjoyed a government which if not always national and it was that too for rather more than half of the fifty years was at any rate acknowledged and submitted to by the whole nation the public tranquillity was scarcely ever disturbed for more than a moment by any internal commotion and never at all by attacks from abroad During this interval, therefore, many of the monastic and other schools that had existed in the days of Alfred, Ethelstan, and Edgar, but had been swept away or allowed to fall into decay in the disastrous forty years that succeeded the decease of the last-mentioned monarch were probably re-established. The more frequent communication with the continent that began in the reign of the confessor must also have been favorable to the intellectual advancement of the country the dawn of the revival of letters in england therefore may be properly dated from a point about fifty years antecedent to the norman conquest or from not very long after the commencement of the eleventh century still at the date of the conquest the country was undoubtedly in regard to everything intellectual in a very backward state or Derekus Vitalis, almost a contemporary writer, and himself a native of England, though educated abroad, describes his countrymen generally as having been found by the Normans, a rustic and almost illiterate people, agrestus et penne illiteratos. The last epithet may be understood as chiefly intended to characterize the clergy, for the great body of the laity at this time were everywhere illiterate a few years after the conquest the king took advantage of the general illiteracy of the native clergy to deprive great numbers of them of their benefices and to supply their places with foreigners his real or his only motive for making this substitution may possibly not have been that which he avowed but he would scarcely have alleged what was notoriously not the fact even as a pretense the norman conquest introduced a new state of things in this as in most other respects that event made england as it were a part of the continent where not long before a revival of letters had taken place scarcely less remarkable if we take into consideration the circumstances of the time than the next great revolution of the same kind in the beginning of the fifteenth century in france indeed the learning that had flourished in the time of charlemagne had never undergone so great a decay as had befallen that of england since the days of alfred the schools planted by alcuin and the philosophy taught by Erigena had both been perpetuated by a line of the disciples and followers of these distinguished masters which had never been altogether interrupted but in the tenth century this learning of the west had met and been intermixed with a new learning originally from the east but obtained directly from the arab conquerors of spain the arabs had first become acquainted with the literature of greece in the beginning of the eighth century and it instantly exercised upon their minds an awakening influence of the same powerful kind with that with which it again kindled europe seven centuries afterwards one difference however between the two classes is very remarkable The mighty effects that arose out of the second revival of the ancient Greek literature in the modern world were produced almost solely by its eloquence and poetry, but these were precisely the parts of it that were neglected by the Arabs. The Greek books which they sought after with such extraordinary avidity were almost exclusively those that related either to metaphysics and mathematics on the one hand or to medicine chemistry botany and the other departments of physical knowledge on the other all greek works of these descriptions that they could procure they not only translated into their own language but in course of time illustrated with voluminous commentaries the prodigious magnitude to which this arabic literature eventually grew will stagger the reader who has adopted the common notion with regard to what are called the middle or the dark ages the royal library of the Fatimites, sovereigns of egypt says gibbon consisted of one hundred thousand manuscripts elegantly transcribed and splendidly bound which were lent without jealousy or avarice to the students of cairo yet this collection must appear moderate if we can believe that the Amiad's of spain had formed a library of six hundred thousand volumes forty-four of which were employed in the mere catalogues their capital cordova with the adjacent towns of malaga almeria and mercia had given birth to more than three hundred writers and above seventy public libraries were opened in the cities of the andalusian kingdom the difficulty we have in conceiving the existence of a state of things such as that here described arises in great part from the circumstance of the entire disappearance now and for so long a period of all this arabic power and splendor from the scene of european affairs but long extinct as it has been the dominion of the arabs in europe was no mere momentary blaze it lasted with little diminution for nearly five hundred years a period as long as from the age of chaucer to the present day and abundantly sufficient for the growth of a body of literature and science even of the wonderful extent that has been described in the tenth century arabic spain was the fountainhead of learning in europe thither students were accustomed to repair from every other country to study in the arabic schools And many of the teachers in the chief towns of france and italy had finished their education in these seminaries and were now diffusing among their countrymen the new knowledge which they had thence acquired the writings of several of the greek authors also and especially those of aristotle had been made generally known to scholars by latin versions of them made from the arabic there is no trace of this new literature having found its way to england before the norman conquest but that revolution immediately brought it in its train the conqueror himself observes a writer who has illustrated this subject with a profusion of curious learning patronized and loved letters he filled the bishoprics and abbacies of england with the most learned of his countrymen who had been educated at the university of paris at that time the most flourishing school in europe He placed Lanfranc, abbot of the Monastery of St. Stephen at Cannes, in the See of Canterbury. An eminent master of logic, the subtleties of which he employed with great dexterity in a famous controversy concerning the real presence. Anselm, an acute metaphysician and theologian, his immediate successor in the same See, was called from the government of the Abbey of Beck in Normandy hermann a norman bishop of salisbury founded a noble library in the ancient cathedral of that see many of the norman prelates preferred in england by the conqueror were polite scholars godfrey prior of st swithin's at winchester a native cambrai was an elegant latin epigrammist and wrote with the smartness and ease of Marshall. a circumstance which by the way shows that the literature of the monks at this period was of a more liberal caste than that which we commonly annex to their character and profession geoffrey also another learned norman came over from the university of paris and established a school at dunstable where according to matthew paris he composed a play called the play of saint catherine which was acted by his scholars dressed characteristically in copes borrowed from the sacrist of the neighboring abbey of St. Albans, of which Geoffrey afterwards became abbot. The king himself, Wharton continues, gave no small countenance to the clergy in sending his son, Henry Beauclerc, to the abbey of Abingdon, where he was initiated in the sciences under the care of the abbot Grimbald and Feritius, a physician of Oxford. Robert Doilly, constable of Oxford Castle, was ordered to pay for the board of the young prince and the convent, which the king himself frequently visited. Nor was William wanting in giving ample revenues to learning. He founded the magnificent abbeys of Battle and Selby, with other smaller convents. His nobles and their successors cooperated with this liberal spirit in erecting many monasteries. Herbert de la Singa, a monk of Normandy, bishop of butford in norfolk instituted and endowed with large possessions a benedictine abbey at norwich consisting of sixty monks to mention no more instances such great institutions of persons dedicated to religious and literary leisure while they diffused an air of civility and softened the manners of the people in their respective circles must have afforded powerful incentives to studious pursuits and have consequently added no small degree of stability to the interests of learning to this it may be added that most of the successors of the conqueror continued to show the same regard for learning of which he had set the example nearly all of them had themselves received a learned education besides henry beauclerc henry the second whose father Geoffrey plantagenet earl of anjou was famous for his literary acquirements had been carefully educated under the superintendence of his admirable uncle the earl of gloucester and he appears to have taken care that his children should not want the advantages he had himself enjoyed for at least the three eldest henry Geoffrey, and richard are all noted for their literary as well as their other accomplishments what learning existed however was still for the most part confined to the clergy even the nobility although it cannot be supposed that they were left altogether without literary instruction, appeared to have been very rarely initiated in any of those branches which were considered as properly constituting the scholarship of the times. The familiar knowledge of the Latin language in particular, which was then the key to all other erudition, seems to have been almost exclusively confined to churchmen, and to those few of the laity who embraced the profession of schoolmasters, as some at least on the continent were now wont to do the contemporary writer of a life of becket relates that when henry the second in eleven sixty four sent an embassy to the pope in which the earl of arundel and three other noblemen were associated with an archbishop four bishops and three of the royal chaplains four of the churchmen at the audience to which they were admitted first delivered themselves in as many latin harangues and then the earl of arundel stood up and made a speech in english which he began with the words "We." who are illiterate laymen do not understand one word of what the bishops have said to your holiness the notion that learning properly belonged exclusively to the clergy and that it was a possession in which the laity were unworthy to participate was in some degree the common belief of the age and by the learned themselves was almost universally held as an article of faith that admitted of no dispute nothing can be more strongly marked than the tone of contempt which is expressed for the mass of the community, the unlearned vulgar, by the scholars of this period. In their correspondence with one another especially, they seem to look upon all beyond their own small circle as beings of an inferior species. This pride of theirs, however, worked beneficially upon the whole. In the first place it was in great part merely a proper estimation of the advantages of knowledge over ignorance and secondly it helped to make the man of the pen a match for him of the sword, the natural liberator of the human race for its natural oppressor. At the same time it intimates very forcibly at once the comparative rarity of the highly prized distinction and the depth of the darkness that still reigned far and wide around the few scattered points of light. End of section 7